On this episode of the Concast, we discuss all things nerve pain. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Connor here with episode 11 of the Concast. I am a registered massage therapist and sports injury therapist practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. And for episode 11, I've chosen to give my take on neurological symptoms within patients. I want to preface this by saying this is an incredibly, incredibly complex topic, but I'm going to try my best at trying to simplify it or at least give you an idea of how I rationalize working with somebody that's presenting with neurological symptoms. So the first thing is, what do I classify as neurological symptoms? For me, the first symptom that I consider is that of neuritis which is a dull, achy, broad-based pain anywhere in the body. And when you think about the number of patients that come in with that symptom, it's very, very common. I think more often than not, it might, in fact, be an inflammatory response that's going on somewhere in the nervous system that we mistaken as some sort of soft tissue disruption or a ligament disruption within the body. So The first symptom that I consider is dull, achy pain. I then consider any alterations in sensation. So anesthesia being complete loss of sensation to an area. Paresthesia typically being an alteration in sensation, which is numbness and tingling, for example. I'll then move towards more of the more classic signs and symptoms of neurological conditions. That being radicular pain. So sharp shooting, linear-like pain within the body or uh, muscle atrophy or weakness, so loss of muscle size or weakness left to right. And then lastly, uh, autonomic changes, so local changes to, say, the sweating reflex, skin color, uh, the tone of skin. These all collectively allow me to formulate some sort of thought process around, okay, I think this might be coming from the nervous system as opposed to local tissue disruption. I then break the nervous system down into two components, a central component and a peripheral component. When I refer to the central component, I'm referring to the spinal column. And what I'm concerned with here is, is there a disruption or some sort of encroachment on a spinal nerve root? And the three things that I commonly think about are discs in the spine, so whether it be cervical, thoracic, or lumbosacral a degenerative process in a spinal joint, a facet joint that has caused collapsing onto the spinal nerve, or some sort of osteoarthritic growth into the neural foramen or the hole by which the nerve root exits. So for example, an osteophyte. From there, I want to look at how that corresponds to the patient's pain. So where is the location on the body that they feel the pain? I want to then assess the spinal levels of The spinal nerve that I think is injured, the one above it and the one below it, just to kind of get this multi-segmental assessment of the spinal column. And how I'm approaching that is first through the dermatome. So I'm looking at where is the sensation that they're feeling, the numbness and tingling or the pain, and I'm trying to correspond that to a dermatome or a series of dermatomes, mainly because we know that dermatomes don't work exactly the way that they look in textbooks and some dermatomes will cross over each other. But a dermatome is essentially an area of skin on the body that corresponds to a spinal nerve root. So for example, if I'm working with a hand and I look at the thumb, the thumb corresponds to the C6 spinal nerve root. 
So I would then look at C5, C6, and C7 and correspond that back to the spinal column at the level of C5, C6, C7 because really that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the spinal column through the lens of the patterns that they elicit into the peripheral aspect of the body. I will then correspond that with I would then correspond that with a myotome. A myotome is looking at a particular strength pattern and corresponding that back to the spinal nerve root. So I would look at the myotome, for example, at C5, C6, and C7, left versus right side of the body, and see whether there's any discrepancies within strength, or that creates any of the symptoms that they're feeling or exacerbates them when I'm taking them through that particular pattern. And then if it's available to me, I would look at corresponding deep tendon reflexes for those spinal levels. So C5, C6, C7, I would probably look at all of the upper limb reflexes in that case, the bicep, the brachioradialis, and the tricep. When I'm looking at reflexes, I'm looking at them left and right again. I'm looking at if an individual is hyporeflexic, so the reflexes are diminished, versus hyperreflexic, being the reflexes are exaggerated. Typically, exaggerated reflexes are coming more from the central nervous system, brain, and spinal cord, where diminished reflexes are coming from the peripheral nervous system outside of the brain and spinal cord. From there, I want to see whether any corresponding neurological orthopedic tests are increasing the likelihood that I think this is a neurologically driven symptom. I have a tendency to be pretty basic with my neurological orthopedic tests in the neck. I'm using very simple compression and distraction techniques. I might use a Sperling's test as well to see if I can get that to correspond to the symptoms that I'm feeling. And typically in the low back, I'm using pretty much the straight leg raise, the well leg raise, slump test, and variations of that to try and see if, again, these tests lead me down the path of the hypothesis that I'm already on. If I find that all of those line up, so there is a, and this would be incredibly rare to be honest, there is a pain along a particular dermatome which corresponds with a reduction in myotomes and an alteration in reflexes and positive orthopedic tests, then that's the path that I'm going to lead down. I'm going to go with that index of suspicion that that nerve root is injured centrally at the spinal column. In terms of treatment, then I want to do everything I can to try and reduce the tone of the structures around those particular spinal levels, the, the amount of compression that's going on at those particular spinal levels. I might want to do some joint mobilizations to offer some reduction in symptoms if I can. And then I want to have a good active care management portion to it, which includes pain relief and pain management. And this can be done through using positional relief techniques. It can be done through movement education. It can be done through non-threatening movement patterns. And I want to try and get the patient moving as early as possible under low threat in the injury process as I can. Now, if they've been, say, three months or more, they're falling into more persistent symptom categories, then this is even more important for me because I know that there might start to be central changes in behavior the more chronic a neurological injury, but an injury in general, occurs. So active movement should be a very, very important portion of any care plan, but also when it comes to neurological 
injuries and conditions. So that's how I look at things from a central perspective. If I go down that path and something doesn't quite match up, then I might look at a peripheral neurological injury. A peripheral neurological injury is outside of the nerve root, so distal or beyond the nerve root. These injuries, in my experience, are typically due to some sort of lack of relative motion between the nerve and the adjoining tissue that the nerve courses through. Nerves are essentially strings, and those strings course through tissue within the body. So they pierce through muscles, they pierce through fascial connections, they run in between muscles or fascial bags. And as a result of that, the theory behind peripheral neurological injuries is that they need to move independently of these structures. This allows the nerve to get good nutrients through imbibition, imbibition being pressure change due to motion. So negative and positive pressure changes allow for good perfusion within the nerve, good blood flow. This allows for new oxygen to be brought into the area. It allows for the exchange of metabolic waste products between the nerve and the vascular system and allows the nerve to maintain health, strength, mobility, vibrancy. What can happen is these nerves can lose relative motion for whatever reason. So they might not glide proximal and distal as well as they should, or they might become compressed at a particular area of the body, say between two pieces of soft tissue, or around a bone, or between a piece of bone and soft tissue. The body is really smart at making adaptations, and it will start to adapt for a period of time. You might get some dull, achy pain, but that might go away. This is the nerve attempting to change its architecture in an attempt to adapt to the lack of movement that it's experiencing. And so what it will try and do is as it loses its ability to glide proximal and distal, it may increase its diameter at a particular point in an attempt to make up for the loss of proximal and distal distance. And when it does that, it will alter its local blood flow. It will alter its perfusion. And through altering its perfusion, you're not getting as much oxygen into the area. So the that area of the nerve can become ischemic or low in oxygen, as well as that will allow it to accumulate more metabolic waste products more readily. And this is what we see as some of the onset of symptoms then. This might create nociception or a signal back to the brain that we don't appreciate as normal. And researcher Jeffrey Bove would coin this ectopic axonal sensitivity, which basically means we're taking a physiological response within the nerve, maybe that of inflammation, and we are converting it into an action potential or something more mechanical, and that's sending a signal back to the brain. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always going to generate pain from that signal, but it can create information into the brain that we have to interpret. The way that I would liken this is if somebody comes and taps on my shoulder and they do that for five seconds, it's not really annoying to me. And my brain can easily kind of discriminate against that and turn that signal off. I might actually find that comfortable. But if somebody was to come and tap on my shoulder for 24 hours straight, that would eventually become very, very annoying. It might create pain. It might create sensations that increase my anxiety. It might increase the tone of the local tissue. And that's the example that I'm giving is that over time, this change in the local mechanics and physiology of the nerve 
eventually start sending signals back to the brain on a quite regular basis. And we then have to interpret that information readily. And this can often result in symptoms of pain, loss of sensation, numbness and tingling. Now, in terms of how these injuries might present a little bit differently than central is for me, they don't necessarily always follow that linear path of a dermatome. The symptoms can be a little bit more patchy, even mimicking sort of 360 degree pain patterns or loss of sensation. There typically isn't the change in reflex or myotome that you might see centrally. When you attempt to manipulate the limb, so the arm or the leg, in a position that would create length through the nerve, so this might be, for example, an upper limb tension test variation, or any type of stretch to the nerve, it will exacerbate the symptoms. My thought around this is that the stretch on the nerve is increasing the demand of that area that's irritated and as a result of that, it's exacerbating the symptoms that you are feeling at that time. How I approach these peripheral injuries from a treatment standpoint is I want to try and locate the area that I think is causing that mechanical disruption. So where is it that the nerve's getting caught? Is it in the hamstring in the lower leg? Is it between the bicep and the brachioradialis in the upper limb? I really want to focus on maintaining the mobility of the tissue and the interfaces of the tissue there. So rather than maybe going into one muscle, I might try and create excursion between layers of, of tissue. I then want to try and modify the patient's perception of pain the best I can. So I might put them in some you know, neurological mobilizations, so modified stretch positions where the person can learn that, yes, it's okay to put your limb in this position in a non-threatening way without symptoms and having them do that on a quite high frequency basis throughout the course of the day. So I might say, I want you to do this five times every hour if you can. And this just allows the nerve as well as the patient to understand that it's okay for the limb to be in these particular positions of threat if it's done so in a way that is strategic and then we can start to move forward from there and add different types of load, different types of movement patterning to allow the patient to understand and appreciate that from a non-threatening way progressively rather than just saying, go and stretch your hamstrings for three or four or five minutes. And they get up and they have this temporary burst of relief followed by substantial increases in their symptoms. So really the big difference in the periphery for me is it's all about restoring mobility and length rather than reducing compression, which is the approach that I take in the central nervous system. So just to quickly review, again, I see neurological injuries in two buckets, whether it's central and being driven a lot by compression of a spinal nerve at a particular level. It might be disc, joint, or osteoarthritic in nature. And then I look at the peripheral nervous system in terms of lack of mobility and length. What I'm looking at is the compression of the nerve between structures, and that's affecting its local physiology, not allowing it to get good oxygen, good perfusion. And as a result of that, it's creating that action potential back to the brain, and then we're getting an alteration in sensation. Now, the longer that either of these go on, we know that there are central changes in behavior, this can certainly increase the complexity 
of the condition that the patient's feeling. This only will further emphasize the importance of an active care program and teaching the patient how to move properly around their pain. As I always say, these might require further referrals. The person might need a MRI. They might need a EMG to look at nerve conduction. They might need surgery. There are people that are going to need decompressive surgeries within the low back or the neck, or they might need decompression surgeries within the periphery. While we try our best to resolve these symptoms, they might need further consultation with a neurologist or a specialist to try and help break the pain cycle first and or require some type of surgical procedure. I will usually give these a little bit longer time frame before I think about referring because in my experience, I've found that the nervous system can often take a little bit of time to adapt. So I might spend two to three months, as long as there are no red flags, working with the patient before I have a discussion around referring. I'm never also trying to overly excite the patient when I'm trying to refer them elsewhere. I'm not saying I think this is surgical because number one, I don't know. All I'm saying is, you know, this doesn't seem to be moving in in the right direction in terms of my experience, and I'd like to have somebody else look at it. That leaves it very open-ended. It leaves it quite positive. I'm not trying to catastrophize the patient. In doing so, I'm probably just going to make them their symptoms uh, worse for them in the interim. So that is my very basic overview of how I see neurological symptoms in patients. I'd love to know your thoughts. Please leave them in the comments below and let me know what you're doing for your neurological patients and how you're finding progressions in patients. Is there a particular movement strategy you're using that you find is really, really beneficial? I'd love to hear it. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy your Friday. Enjoy your weekend. And we'll see you in the next one.